From WBEZ Chicago, this is American Live. Step one, you are currently in the custody of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Customs, and Border Protection. You have been charged with a crime of illegal entry into the United States. Step two. <laughs> so, Kevin, who is this and, and what is she reading? So this is Rochelle Garza. She's an immigration attorney in Brownsville, Texas. And she's reading a flyer that was handed to some parents after they were separated from their children. Kevin Seif is correspondent for The Washington Post. And on the flyer, there's a, a phone number, basically, which is really the only, the only lifeline they have to their children, the only way they can get information from the government about where their children are, how their children are doing. And explain what she's trying to do. She's trying to locate her client's child. So, you know, she represents a man who's detained in an immigration detention center who, who basically minutes after crossing the border was separated from his daughter. How old is his daughter? She's 12. Um, okay, so let's figure out how we're supposed to do this. So, <clears throat> action one, call ICE. If you're in a detention facility, call this way. Um... Okay, let's call the ORR parent hotline. What is that, the ORR so parent hotline? Of an so that's the phone number that you're supposed to call either as a, as a parent or as an attorney to try to locate, to try to locate your child. Um, I mean, it's, it's really the most, when you look at this flyer, it's the most useful piece of information on it. So, so yeah, this is the number that Rochelle's about to call. So it starts in Spanish and then it switches to English. You have reached the OR National Call Center open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you are calling about a person traveling to the United States who is 18 years of age or older, please press 1. If you have a case manager's extension, please press 2. For all other calls, please press 3 or remain on the line and you will be connected with a case manager. Your call will be monitored for quality assurance. Okay, so there's hold music and there's a phone tree. This all feels very like the most normal thing in the world. Exactly. It's like you're trying to fix your cable. So on this recording you made, an operator picks up after six minutes. Not that long, really. Please wait as we connect. Gracias por llamar a la línea ayuda. Habla Alan. ¿Con quién tengo el gusto? Hola, Alan. ¿Podemos hablar en inglés? Okay, how are you doing, Alan? Um, Very good. So, my name is Rochelle Garza. Uh, I'm an attorney. Okay. I'm I'm looking mm-hmm. for my client's daughter. Uh, I called last week on the 11th of June, and I was told that I would be contacted by the shelter. The shelter. Or, yeah, and right. I and I haven't been contacted, and neither has my client. Okay. Uh, what's the name of the minor? So she gives the name of this girl to the operator, and he looks her up and finds her in the system. Uh, I mean, what I can do is uh, try to do uh, try to uh, send the, the shelter inquiry again. Uh, I mean, because they usually do contact, but uh, right now with the high volume of minors that are entering the United States, it's I, it's a little complicated for them. Hey, Kevin, when he says the high volume of minors entering the United States, is that what's happening? No. I mean, there there is no surge of minors crossing the border. In fact, there are fewer people crossing the border than almost any time in the last decade. What there's a surge of is a surge of families being separated. And that's what's changed. And that's why he's getting so many calls. Right. There are children and parents who can't find each other. 
maybe there's a better way for for us to do this can i send a letter to you or to the shelter somehow saying that i'm representing her father that way i can at least confirm you know where she is and, and so i can go ahead and start working on her case okay um for that no uh so basically they don't we don't uh release the information of the shelter. We can't release that information to the public. We don't release the information saying what shelter she's in, is what he's saying, right? Right. Through safety concerns, safety purposes. But I mean, I can, you know, type out a little bit of, uh, like, the, the whatever you want to tell them to, the, to tell the shelter, and I can make sure they get the message. I don't know if that will work for you. Yeah, no, I, I guess I'm just trying to figure out a way that I can explain that I'm I'm an attorney and that I'm the attorney assisting the parent and the parent has asked me to locate the child. So uh, that way I can I can speak with her. Um, is there any email address that I can maybe send a letter of representation to, um, even if it's to someone at your office? Give me one second. I think that's one of the fundamental problems here is that they're making it really hard for he, her to establish that she is, in fact, representing a child. And is the parents in the detention center? Um, yes. I, I think you can probably see that in your system, right? Uh, I can try to find them, but, uh, but I, I was just to, asking. So do the, you want me to confirm his name? Huh? Do you want me to confirm the dad's name? I can give that to you. No, it's okay. No, I... I don't. I only have the uh, information for the minors. I don't have the for the adults. I mean, I can go to the ICE locator and find them. But this surprised me. Is he saying that that his database lists the child and where the child is, but doesn't have the parent's name attached to that? Yeah, I mean, he's telling Rochelle that he has no record of even that parent's name, let alone where that parent's located. I mean, and this I think is the biggest concern that lawyers have right now is. Is there even a record in a government database of which child belongs to which parent? We don't know the answer to that question, but there are a lot of reasons, including this exchange, that, that would make us think that they don't. They don't know. So again, so in the recording, he then heads off to try to answer her question about how can she can get through to the daughter. Okay. I mean, just give me one second so I can speak to my supervisor about this. Let's see. Uh, let me ask, like, what else I can do for you? Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Which Mind holding on. I do not. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. So Kevin, so on his computer screen, he actually has the information that she wants of of where this girl is. Yeah, that's that's basically what he's saying. Um, that he has it. He knows where she is, but he can't give it to her. Now, eventually, as this as this call goes on, the guy gives her an email address, but then it's just the same email address that's on the form that she has, right? Yeah. Yeah, and no, I mean, I like kind of saw her just entirely deflated after he gave that address. Right. So, I mean, how did, how do you feel about that call? Um, not very good. Why? I mean, they're not really trying to help. Yeah. Sorry. It's rough. I just don't know how we're going to track down these kids. That's not helpful. I mean, I can still go through the motions of sending um, 
sending an email to that email address, but I just don't have any faith that it's going to go anywhere. Um, sorry, I'm getting emotional, but it's, it's very frustrating and, uh, it's, I can only imagine what's going on on her end. Okay, so that was a week ago. What's happened since? So Rochelle reached out to one of the legal service providers who work with children who were detained after crossing the border. And these are organizations that represent children through their deportation proceedings, through their asylum hearings. And these organizations keep track of the kids that they're working with. They each have a list of the kids. And Rochelle kind of got lucky. And the the person she reached out to did actually have a record of this girl and was able to tell Rochelle where the girl was being held. She found the name of the shelter. She found the shelter, yeah. So then the next step was for her to get to the shelter um, to try to set up basically an appointment. Um, So on Thursday afternoon, she drove to the shelter and she walked in and there the girl was. I talked to her right afterwards. She looked like her dad. So I recognized her right away. I felt I felt really emotional about it, actually, when I saw her, um, just because I could see her, her dad's face and her face. Um, I had to, exp- obviously, anytime, you know, you go and you introduce yourself to a child, like, they don't, they don't know who you are. I obviously, like, explained my relationship to her dad and, and to her and that I've been looking for her and... You know, her eyes turned really red when I mentioned her dad. And I asked her if she wanted to write him a letter. And she was like, yes. And so she frantically wrote this this letter, and I gave her the time to do that. And so this girl, she's 12 years old. What did Rochelle say? Is she, is she doing okay? Yeah, the girl's doing okay. Rochelle said she's she looks healthy. She's wearing a uniform given to her, a sort of polo shirt given to her by the shelter. And she was wearing a bunch of friendship bracelets that I guess she's learned to make there. And then Rochelle had to do this thing, which is explain that this girl probably is not going to see her dad anytime soon. And she might not even talk to him anytime soon. The way you explain it is like, you know, I, you kind of have to explain what's going on in the national realm, right? You have to say there was this executive order and there was this... Um, decision out of the courts and put it in that kind of context so that, I mean, the thing is, like, I don't have an answer for her, Kevin. Like, I I, I don't, I can't tell her, you're for sure going to get a phone call this day. You're for sure going to be reunited with him on this day. All I can say is, I don't know. Kevin, I I thought the policy had changed. Like, the president announced that we are no longer separating families from children. And in fact, the government announced that they had reunited over 500 children. Yeah, I mean, the government has made these announcements about their plans to reunify families. But when you talk to the lawyers who are representing the parents, not, nothing has changed at all. And in many cases, not only are the families not reunified, but they still these lawyers still can't figure out where the children are being held. And, and what do we know about the 500 plus kids who the government says they reunited? I mean, the government has said that they've reunited these families. When I talk to lawyers who are representing hundreds of parents, I mean, there's one organization that's representing 376, another that's representing, I think, over 400 now. I haven't heard of a single, at least as of a few days ago, I haven't heard of a single reunification. So 
I mean, I think in the absence of concrete information about who these families were, how they were reunified, lawyers are really wondering if these kids were among the 2,300 who were separated from their parents, if, if maybe they were from a sort of different pool of children. It, it, it's possible that the government numbers are, are accurate, but, but there are just so many questions about them because there, there's really no documentation that goes along with it. We reached out to the Department of Homeland Security for clarification about all this, and a spokesperson told us that the 539 children they've said were reunited with parents were all apprehended since May as part of the administration's zero-tolerance policy, and they all were in Border Patrol custody before being returned to their families. Presumably being in Border Patrol custody means they were only in the country a short time and had never been transferred to other agencies, shelters, and foster homes. The spokesperson declined to provide any names of these families, or any information about what countries they were from. But this kind of situation where somebody, in this case the president of the United States, declares that he's changed. It's all different. He's moving on. No longer separating kids from their parents. But the result is not so clear. That situation, that is what our show is about today. Something happens. Maybe you'd like to believe it's true. But you don't know if you should. We have a bunch of different stories that do not involve the current administration or any previous ones. One of the stories, in fact, takes us into a noisy world of half-clad soap opera stars and daytime TV hosts, none of whom I bet you have ever heard of. Stay with us. Aquan, the all-too-real housewives of Argentina. There's an old saying, don't believe everything you see. But there's a corollary, of course. Don't believe everything you see on TV, especially daytime TV. And that doesn't matter what country you're in. Jasmine Garris grew up in Argentina. knows this story. Quick warning before we start. The stories in today's show have some curse words that we have unbeeped here in the podcast version of the show. If you want a version with beeps, maybe you're listening with kids, go to our website. Anyway, here's Jasmine. I watched a lot of television when I was a kid. My grandmother, Yaya, would pick me up at school and bring me back to her place. Her apartment was dark and humid. It smelled like French bread and the exhaust from the buses on the avenue down below. My grandfather was never around. Yaya would make tea, and then we would go to her bedroom and turn the TV on. And suddenly, color, sound, and sex would pour into the world. It was the early afternoon. It was time for the talk shows. Argentine talk shows are extreme, even for Latin American television. The women are pumped up with silicone and Botox and sometimes show up wearing almost nothing. The conversation is not just double entendres, but straight-up entendres, full-on vulgar language. When I was growing up, it was a parade of pasties, stilettos, feather boas. One of the most popular shows back then was hosted by a guy named Jorge Rial. He's still on TV. He's kind of the Argentine everyman, charming and a little bit of a hustler. These days, his TV show is called Intrusos, or Intruders. It takes place on a set that is just seizure-inducing. Neon colors, walls lined with giant video screens. Jorge Real likes to stir up fights among his voluptuous guests. Every time something shocking is said, ominous music rolls out. Once in a while, a woman is so sexy that Jorge Real bites his lower lip and mugs for the camera. This has been Real's style for years. Back in the day, 
Yaya would bring the tea and cookies and lie down next to me in her patent leather platform shoes, which she never took off, not even in bed. My grandmother was the target audience for Rial's show, what's commonly known as a Doña Rosa, a housewife. She loved to hate the show, to look disapprovingly at the women and comment how much surgery she's had, una prostituta, a prostitute, una loca, and they give her expensive gifts, cars, vacations. And I'd look around me at my grandmother's lonely apartment and think to myself, wow, that sounds pretty amazing. I knew I didn't want to be a Doña Rosa when I grew up. When I was a teenager, I moved to the U.S. and eventually became a journalist. I've lived here for 15 years. Sometimes when I get homesick, I stream intrusos on YouTube. I leave it on when I cook and clean. When I watch it, I'm not 5,000 miles away. Yaya is alive. Nothing has changed much. Nothing ever changes on Argentine daytime TV. Until suddenly, a few months ago, it did. One night in February, I was at home in New York, cleaning my kitchen. Intrusos was on in the background, and I heard this woman with a raspy Lauren Bacall voice. I turned around, soapy sponge in hand, and squinted at the screen. A tattooed, heavy-set woman wearing sneakers. I recognized this woman, a comedian named Señorita Bimbo. The stage name Bimbo is ironic. She's anything but. In fact, the very next thing she did was look directly into the camera and offer a statistic about illegal abortion. abortos clandestinos por año. 500,000 women in Argentina have illegal abortions every year, she said. She was wearing a bright green handkerchief around her neck, a provocative symbol everyone in Argentina knows, a symbol of the fight to legalize abortion. For years, activists have been pushing to get Congress to vote on it. When I was growing up, abortion was something you just didn't talk about in Argentina, a Catholic country. It's still not something that comes up on daytime TV. Reproductive rights? That's just not intrusos material. Though here was Jorge Rial, the host, looking intently at Señorita Bimbo. A few hours later, one of my best friends texted me. Did you watch Intrusos today? I sat down at my laptop and started scrolling through the descriptions of the last few episodes. The guests were names I knew, academics, writers, comedians. What they had in common was they were all feminists, people who have been on the fringes for years criticizing sexism in Argentina and demanding women's rights. I started binge-watching. In each episode, there was a nuanced conversation about feminism. Real looked kind of meek, but not in his usual, I've been overpowered by sexy ladies way. He kept delivering these really impassioned monologues, saying, I don't want to be a misogynist, a machista. I'm a recovering machista. The Argentine everyman now appeared to be an earnest feminist. This was not the Real I grew up with. This was not the TV I grew up with. What happened? Could this possibly be sincere? I flew to Argentina to find out. (music) 
As soon as I got there, I went to the studios where Intrusos is taped. I met Ana Laura Guevara, one of the show's executive producers. Being live involves a lot of adrenaline. I really, really love the adrenaline there. To be honest, I wasn't expecting an Intrusos executive producer to be a woman, especially not one like Ana Laura, a self-proclaimed feminist. I had a really hard time wrapping my head around the fact that for 18 years, she had been behind this totally trashy and objectifying show. Ana Laura told me, it's just a job, one she's good at. It's intensely competitive. In the control room, her face shines from the light of the monitor she's hunched over, like in a casino. A monitor that minute by minute tracks the ratings for Intrusos and every other show that's on the air at the same time. I had no idea this was possible. Right now on Intrusos, there's a fight between a former cabaret dancer and a potential candidate for president. Ah. Like skyrocketed. The ratings are going up with this segment. It's like four points. It went from 4.0 to 4.6. This is doing better than the news. Next segment, a fashion model from the 80s says she has her suspicions about a designer's recent death. Dipped to 3.4. The ratings plummet. Nobody cares. Ana Laura orders them to end the segment early. Interest lags for an instant, and Intrusos moves on. The story of how the feminists intruded into Intrusos is its own soap opera. There are a gazillion gossip shows in Argentina. It's like this whole universe. Back in January, one of the shows interviewed this famous singer, a leathery guy in a tropical shirt. In the middle of the interview, the singer casually repeats this awful saying I used to hear as a kid. If someone wants to rape you, relax and enjoy it. The first time I heard that was when I was nine years old. I was in the locker room and a girl blurted it out. I thought it was advice. A lot of my friends did too. So the singer says this offensive thing. A few days later, on another talk show, a soap opera star blows up about it. Her name is Araceli Gonzalez. When I was a kid, her soap opera was huge. She played a mute. A hunk with feathered hair would talk at her while she listened tearfully. But now she wasn't mute. She said the singer's remark made her sick. It was kind of beautiful. Seeing her get angry after so many years of playing a character literally defined by silence. Ana Laura, from Intrusos, saw the fight happening on TV, and she wanted to get a piece of it. She booked Araceli to come on the show. It was a typical day on Intrusos. Jorge Real talked about how much granny panties used to turn him on as a kid. Two former showgirls argued. And then it was Araceli's turn. And just because Araceli had gotten mad about the rape comment, one of the panelists introduces her as a feminist. As soon as Araceli got a chance, she corrected him. She says, I heard you refer to me as a feminist just now, and I am not a feminist. She's vehemently wagging her finger as she says this. I have a wonderful husband and a lovely son whom I love very much and I respect men. This set off another firestorm. Here's Ana Laura. 
Eh, cuando pasa esto de Araceli, un montón de... So, people started tweeting about it and we saw that feminists started to respond. Empiezan a contestar. So, everything exploded. Explotó el tema. There were the kinds of tweets you would expect, like, quote, What the fuck does loving your husband and son have to do with being a feminist, you moron? And here it was, feminist versus the soap opera star, a fight made for daytime television. And Ana Laura knew it. And she also knew Jorge Real, the host of the show. Something had been changing with him lately. Like he'd been saying to anyone who would listen. I am a machista in recovery. I'm trying to find myself. So she approached him in the dressing room, and they started talking. Maybe we should have a feminist on the show to explain what feminism is. Cuando surge esta charla en el camarín de... We hadn't discussed that beforehand, but this day on the dressing room, I think that he was really into it. They decided on a well-known feminist academic, Flor Freijo. And even she'll tell you, she's a safe bet for a show like Intrusos. She's thin and blonde. So Flor gets invited to Intrusos. And the very first question Jorge Real asks her is, what is feminism? I didn't prepare anything. I didn't prepare a speech. I didn't have time. So I went open to listen to the questions and explain things just as I do to my students in a class. Of all the strange things I've seen on Argentine TV, this might be one of the oddest. Against a neon fizz background, Flor Frejo does a Feminism 101. At the bottom of the screen, a banner in bold letters reads, Feminism. It's a movement for women's rights. Flor starts explaining, Feminism is a movement for women's rights. It started in the 19th century. It has to do with the division of labor, child-rearing. Jorge Real is listening, completely mesmerized, his little eyebrows furrowed, scratching his beard. And while all this is happening, Ana Laura is sitting in the control room upstairs, watching everything, of course, and also keeping her eye on the ratings monitor. The control room is usually a chaotic mass of yelling, but now, with Flor speaking... And when we were watching her talking, Flor, the control room went quiet. We were all paying attention to what, to what she was saying, but we were all quiet. It, we were really, like, silently watching and learning from her. And then the spell is broken, because the phone rings in the control room. It's Araceli, the soap opera star, who's the whole reason Flor is here. She wants to talk to Flor, live, right now. Everyone in the control room is geared up for a good old-fashioned intruso spat. Hola, Jorge, ¿cómo están todos? Todo muy bien. Flor was kind of shocked. I didn't know that Araceli was going to call. I had no idea of what was going to happen. But it wasn't an ambush. Araceli wasn't calling to fight. Instead, she tells Flor, I've been listening really well to what you're saying. And she wanted the audience to know that she didn't know what feminism was until just now, when she was watching TV and saw Flor explain it. She starts telling the story of her life through various generations of women, her own single mother, and herself. She talks about how she'd been sexually abused as a child and emotionally abused as an adult. And Araceli told Flor, I know what you're talking about, and I agree with you. If this means being a feminist, then I'm a feminist. Flor nods and gives a thumbs up. 
By the way, this is never how intrusos finishes. People don't just listen to each other and change their minds. And the ratings, Ana Laura says the ratings were great. Strong enough that she decided, let's do this again tomorrow. And so it began. Over the next few days, some of the most famous feminists in Argentina came on to intrusos. Comedians, authors, professors. Audiences were stunned. Someone tweeted, My ideology is starting to converge with Jorge Rial's, and that terrifies me. It was pretty strange for everyone. This very misogynistic show had suddenly become like the public town hall on feminism in Argentina. And the ratings were not just good. Ana Laura says they were higher than normal. She was delighted that she could keep this going. Luciana Becker. There's a journalist called Luciana Pecker. She's also very important in feminism, and she's an old friend from college. And she came to our show, and when we met backstage, we were like, not even in our wildest dreams. We could have dreamed about this, you being here in this type of show. Midway through all of this is when I tuned in, when I started streaming in New York. The show was like going through hundreds of years of feminism in a couple of days. They pass through topics like LGBT rights, workplace harassment, income inequality, and then the most taboo thing of all, abortion. Jorge Rial tied the green handkerchief around his wrist, the one activist who wants to legalize abortion where, and then he invited the large woman with the gravelly voice who I saw at home in New York City, Señorita Bimbo. Right off the bat, she said, the fact that there's a fat girl on Argentine TV is already a victory. She told me she was actually pretty nervous. The first thing I thought was, what they're all going to say is like, what is this fat girl doing here, this fat girl feminazi? But she powered through. She had a mission. I knew I wanted to talk about abortion. My plan was to at least mention it. And I just sat down and started talking. I felt like I was going to a battle where I had to use words as arrows because abortion is something that you don't say. It's something that you talk about in harsh tones if you have one. Silencio y en voz baja si te abortaste. On Intruso, Señorita Bimbo talked about how abortion is so taboo, you don't even talk about it in fiction. In Argentine TV and film, unwanted pregnancy is solved by a villain pushing you down the stairs and causing you to miscarry. And then, about 30 seconds before they cut to commercial and move to the next guest, Señorita Bimbo said something about abortion that surprised even her. Misoprostol. She says, I want girls to know about misoprostol. This is a really big deal. Officially, misoprostol is a drug used to treat stomach ulcers, but it can also be used to induce labor. So, in a continent where abortion is mostly banned, women take it if they want to miscarry. People call it the DIY abortion. She's talking about doing something illegal on one of the most popular daytime talk shows, watched by housewives. That same day, misoprostol was one of the most Googled words in the country. I think you're underestimating your audience, Señorita Bimbo said on the show. Doña Rosa is dead. Doña Rosa, that stereotypical Argentine housewife. So the woman that is in front of the TV and who needs her world to be explained to her through daytime TV 
She just doesn't exist anymore. Of course, none of this would have happened on Intrusos if the ratings had been bad. And the ratings were great, for reasons that Jorge Rial and Ana Laura can claim no credit for at all. Feminism has been gaining critical mass in Argentina for the last couple of years. The movement was triggered by these brutal murders of young women, often by boyfriends, husbands, and fathers. Women started protesting. A whole crusade was born. It was called Ni Una Menos, Not One Less Woman. And since 2015, this has grown to the point where it's impossible to ignore and has expanded to abortion rights, street harassment, and equal pay. It's young people on social media, comedians on YouTube, pop stars on Instagram, gigantic demonstrations. It just wasn't a topic for daytime talk shows. Until Jorge, Ana Laura, and Intrusos. During that week on Intrusos, there was this explosion of tweets from young girls, perplexed but ecstatic to see feminism on daytime TV. This one girl, Onita Ocampo, tweeted, I showed my dad the Intrusos episode with Senorita Bimbo. I dropped by her house and she told me these feminists were explaining to Jorge Real all the things she'd tried to explain but couldn't get her parents to understand. So one night, she approached her dad. And she told him, if you watch this episode of Intrusos on YouTube with me, I'll massage your feet. She ended up getting the whole family to watch. She showed them Señorita Bimbo. She pointed to Jorge Rial wearing the same green handkerchief she wears and said, look, it's just like mine. It opened up a conversation, which she says they've been having ever since. Anita's mom says she saw Jorge Rial talk about how he's a recovering chauvinist. And she says, so is she. Sí, estoy en un 70. <laughs> Me falta un 30 todavía. <laughs> I'm at like 70% feminism, she says. I still have 30% left to go. During my week in Argentina, I kept trying to talk to Jorge Real, and he kept blowing me off. Had he really converted to feminism? Everyone I asked rolled their eyes and pointed to the last few decades of his career. They pointed to his recent vicious public fight with one of his daughters. They pointed to how late he is to the whole feminism thing. He's a Johnny-come-lately. He's only doing this because it'll make him more popular. After days of giving me the runaround, he told me to just send my questions. And finally, on my very last night in Argentina, my phone lit up. It was voice memos from Jorge Real. What happened to me, Rial says? What made me bring all these feminists onto intrusos? He talks about his 18-year-old daughter, Rocio, and how she's a feminist. We have these very interesting talks over dinner, he says. And she started opening this world up to me. I am 56 years old. I was raised in a completely sexist culture. I didn't get it. That's why I say I'm a recovering chauvinist, thanks to my daughter. My daughter made me change. Jorge Real knows that I think Intrusos is stupid. He knows most people do. That's the show's superpower. Frivolo. We're frivolous. 
We're a show about showbiz. No one suspected that this is where feminism could win. We eluded the firewalls that kept feminism off of TV. There was this wall. You couldn't talk about these things on TV. And suddenly it happened on intrusos. But to be honest, he said, it's all because of feminists. They knew. Any place is good if you have a strong message. After the week of feminism, Intrusos was left with a split personality. These days, it's a mix of fighting starlets and women's rights activists. Jorge Real's social media is a mix of World Cup woes, celebrity gossip, and then these really earnest feminist tweets. Like this one a few weeks ago. They came to make things better for the coming generations, for our daughters and their daughters, and also for men. The men who come after us must be better than us. We did everything wrong. The day after he tweeted that, on June 14th, Argentina's lower house of Congress approved a bill to legalize abortion. After an all-night debate, it barely passed, by only four votes. And it yet has to pass the upper house. Still, outside Congress, thousands of women and activists who'd gathered to wait for the results celebrated wildly. Every time I spoke to those women about what role television like Intrusos played in all this, they got uncomfortable. On my last day in Argentina, I grabbed a coffee with an old friend from high school, Jordana Timmerman. She recently wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about the push to legalize abortion in Argentina. And we talked about the role pop culture played in that. You need to have people like Real or pop culture, Doña Rosa, understanding that this is a necessary right, because if not, it's not going to happen. In other words, the message needs to go into homes in the most remote locations of the country. And TV is one of the only ways to do that. Jordana was saying intrusos helped. But when I ask her about whether we should thank Jorge Real, she just laughs. I'm not going on record with that. Are you crazy? <laughs> I have a name. <laughs> I know what she means. After so many years of awful television and this guy's shenanigans, I just don't want to tip my hat to him. And maybe that's part of his penance. He did something good, and no one will ever thank him for it. Jasmine Garce, she's an NPR reporter. The story was co-produced with Marian McCune as part of a collaboration with the NPR podcast Rough Translation. If you have not heard that show... The premise is they look at how things we talk about here in the United States get talked about elsewhere around the world. This leads into all kinds of stories that take you deep into other cultures and countries in this way. This is very unusual. Rough translation. Find it at Apple Podcasts or the nine million other places you can get a podcast these days. Coming up, okay, you've heard about good cop, bad cop, but what about a bad cop who now says he's a good cop and really, 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 really wants everybody to believe him? That's in a minute. 
from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, change you can maybe believe in. We have stories where things happen that you want to believe, you wish you could believe, but something tells you maybe you should not believe. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program. Act 2, you have the right to remain angry. This story is about a man whose job was to uphold the law, and he was terrible at it. He says he's changed, though. Completely changed. Lily Sullivan, one of our producers, heard about him from some videos she saw. There's this news story. I've watched it a bunch of times. My friend sent it to me. Not because she thought I'd like it. She knew I wouldn't. It all went down on this block in Benton Harbor, Michigan. Jamel McGee says he was minding his own business when a police officer accused him of and arrested him for dealing drugs. You saying the officer made it up? Yeah, it was all made up. This was on CBS National News in 2016. The guy talking who got framed is black. The cop who framed him is white. So after it comes out that the guy had been wrongly convicted, he gets out of prison. He'd been in for three years. And he gets this job at a coffee shop. You know who his boss is? The cop. The guy who framed him. He was now the manager there. By sheer coincidence, they now work side by side in the same cafe. Excuse me. And it was in these cramped quarters that the bad cop and the wrongfully accused had no choice but to have it out. The cop apologized, and the guy who was framed forgave him. That was pretty much what I needed to hear. Today, they're not only cordial, they're friends. The reporter couldn't stop fawning over how lovely it was. Such close friends. Not long ago, Jamel actually told Andrew he loved him. The problem with the story was it wasn't the whole story. When my friend sent it to me, she told me the cop, whose name is Andrew Collins, he didn't just put one innocent guy in prison. I googled this cop, and it turns out he falsified police reports and warrants. He lied on the stand. At least 62 cases were either overturned or got thrown out. This small town of Benton Harbor ended up having to pay $5.5 million in settlements for civil rights violations. But he befriends one guy, and all that goes away? None of the other 61 victims even gets a mention? And then he gets to go on TV and tell his story, over and over, because, annoyingly, America seems to love this kind of story of forgiveness. This involves my next guest, Jamel, and former police officer Andrew. That's talk show host Steve Harvey. And here's Megyn Kelly on NBC. Now our series, Hopeful Holidays, and the story of two men who prove there is always hope for forgiveness and redemption. Mike Huckabee on Fox. I don't know of anything more powerful to help us through not only forgiveness and grace, but also racial reconciliation, and God bless you both. Racial reconciliation, really? That's pretty big. As if this one story could hit undo on all countries' worth of harm. These stories are always about people who forgive, preaching this forgiveness thing as some kind of tidy remedy that can set the world right. And clearly, if these two guys from the coffee shop can set aside their bitter grounds, what's our excuse? Look, I'm not from this town. This had nothing to do with me. But I wondered if lots of people there saw this coverage and rolled their eyes. What about the people who don't forgive? 
Visit Ben Harbor. They're not hard to find. Fuck him. Fuck him. I'm serious. I, I'm good. This is Robert Walker, also known as White Boy Rob. Why do they call you White Boy Rob? Because my mom's white. You don't look white. Why, thank you. <laughs> I met him at his house. Or the truth is, I surprised him at his house. I found him in his backyard, riding his lawnmower in his sweatpants. Rob's definitely noticed that no one's doing a TV story about how he feels about this cop. When they went to the Steve Harvey show, why you ain't take me? You ain't take me because I was going to tell you the motherfucking truth. You, you, you hyping up this big thing about one person forgiving you. That ain't the only person that you fucked over. That's not. And it pisses me off that, you know, y'all kissing buddy buddies. But what about everybody else that you done in? What about everybody else? Rob says Collins was so corrupt that people would do all kinds of things just to stay out of his way. For a while, one of the local radio stations, 105.3, would warn people whenever Collins was on duty. This one time, they did a special show. Colin, and tell us your corrupt Collins story. So one day, Rob's at a stoplight, and he sees Collins in the lane next to him. I was on M139 at Pipestone. I was in a black Impala SS. This is actually like a race car. He was next to me in a Ford Taurus, which is a putt-putt to me. Then when I was at the stoplight, I looked over at him. He looked over at me. And then when I turned, he just jumped straight behind me. At this point, I'm thinking that he's going to plant some drugs on me. Collins throws on his lights and sirens. And Rob's like, I'm not stopping. Instead, he says, he just keeps driving under the speed limit with Collins following him, lights and sirens on. Rob drives for four minutes like this, all the way to the police station. The only place he thinks he might be safe. I went to the police station and told them he want to search my car. Could you please watch him so he won't plant under my car? What did they say to you? Nothing they watched. They watched him search. They knew. They knew he was dirty. I mean, come on, what what guy, what guy gonna pull to the police station, get arrested, and the whole time I'm not worried about nothing. I'm just worried about him planting something. Y'all watch him, make sure he don't plant plant nothing. Rob went to jail that day. Not for drugs, Collins didn't find any. But he arrested Rob anyway, for fleeing and eluding. Rob didn't do much time. A couple days, bonded out $3,000. But he did get convicted. In Michigan, fleeing and eluding is a felony. It's still on his record. This other guy, Quasi Roberts, suffered more. In 2008, Quasi was leaving his girlfriend's house, hot summer day, when Collins and his partner pulled up. The partner said he'd seen Quasi throw something. Collins patted Quasi down while his partner walked around the block. The partner came back and waved a baggie of crack in Quasi's face. Quasi says it wasn't his. But he ended up serving a year in jail. It was a terrible year to be in jail. He and his girlfriend were about to have a baby. The baby didn't make it. When you have a stillborn that's really a person, you got to go through all those stages, name it, get a social security number and everything. You got to go through everything. Actually, person, you got to bury it. He still thinks about the baby. Yeah. Because he was mine. (laughs) Quasi couldn't be with his girlfriend for any of that he had to hear about it through the prison phone not long after that his girlfriend met someone else so he's pretty angry at Collins Quasi's seen those news stories too his mom called him once and told him to turn on the Megyn Kelly show 
one of those stories with Andrew Collins and Jamel McGee, the guy who forgave him. It's good that McGee smiling about everything. He must didn't lose nobody. I'm blessed. I guess he's blessed. He's blessed? Yeah, I guess he did four years and didn't lose nobody. I did a year and lost a son. So I'm, I think Andrew Collins' interview with me will be, I won't be showing no teeth and grinning at him. Maybe if I wouldn't have lost my child, maybe I'd be smiling too. Quasi hasn't seen Collins since he went to jail, so Quasi never got an apology. But he thinks he deserves one. I asked if he wanted to meet with Collins. He said yeah. It was easy to find Collins. He actually has a publicist from when he and Jamel wrote a book together, came out last year. It's described as an unlikely journey of forgiveness and friendship. Collins is big, 6'1", blue eyes, dresses like a surfer who's also on the football team, who's also in a Christian punk band. Flip-flops, shorts, a few tattoos, some with scripture. These days, he freely admits that he'd pull people over without probable cause, write phony police reports, falsify warrants, plant drugs in people's cars. I think one of the ways he's able to sleep at night is that he believes nearly all the people he wrongly arrested were drug dealers. He thought they should be in jail. And about those TV stories. I was surprised, but Collins actually agrees with me. He thinks it's messed up how they all focus on him and Jamel and forgiveness and ignore the harm he did to so many people in the community. It's not a story about a community, though. It should be, but it hasn't been. It's been told as a story about Jamel and I. Just this fun-loving story, this fun, cute story we can pet. But I don't, I've never met a reporter that's like, I would like to meet somebody who still hates you. I'm happy to be that reporter. And he said he was game to meet with Quasi. He sees it as his responsibility to apologize as much as he can. It's his restitution, he says. And he has a whole way he deals with conversations like this. He's worked out all the words, the best way to do it. It's all about owning what you did and giving people a chance to lament the wrong things you did and then i'll say you're exactly you're absolutely right i'm so sorry for those things i did and it it kind of sucks the anger out of somebody when the offender is standing right in front of you saying you're right no no justification no minimizing no no reason i can't give you any reason why i did it there's, there's no good reason why I did that to you. And I owe you an apology. Collins suggested that he and Quasi meet at the office of this Christian organization where he volunteers. It had been 10 years since they'd seen each other. What's up, man? What's going on, How you doing? Long time no see. You haven't aged a bit, man. No, I ain't never. <laughs> They say black don't crack? No, it cracks. <laughs> Especially if you drink a whole lot. All right. No, man, you look good. Now you see me without a hat, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you is what you eat. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. You guys remember each other now? Yeah. I remember like it was yesterday. They sit down. Colin says, I'm trying to remember exactly how I know you. I know we've had plenty of run-ins. And I wanted to say that, like, from the from the beginning, like, so it's been 10 years since I've even been there. So if I don't remember specifics, like that's not to disrespect you or anything like that, because I know this was very personal to you. 
It's just that I don't remember. There was so many people, and I did so many bad things. So <sighs> I started to make it specific because I still had the police report. They talk about the day that Collins and his partner arrested Quasi. Collins's partner was dirty, too. He went to prison after Collins did. And he's actually the one who said he saw Quasi throw the baggie of drugs, which Quasi says he didn't do. Collins says he remembers going back to the spot later to take photos for the trial and realizing his partner was probably lying. He couldn't have seen what he said he saw. There were trees in the way. So I remember thinking then, like, okay, my partner might have stretched the truth a little bit, but I still was convinced you were guilty because he said he you said, were guilty, right? So It's what the police say. I know I wanted you, though. Right. I know I wanted you to be guilty. <laughs> Why? Quasi bothered me when I was a police officer because he didn't he didn't just shut up and like he he'd tell me my breast dunk and you know I, I mean, never listen. Quasi thought Collins had gotten off way too easy for what he did. He only spent a year and a half in jail. Collins says he hears that a lot. I think there's some people that would say day for day, whatever those other people did in, in jail, he should have to do that now day for day. Right. Would have sounded good. <laughs> that would have been fair. Like, whatever, except by say, like one person got two to five, another person got um, 40-something months to something months. Take all of them, add all of them together, and see, can he face up to them? <laughs> Bad motherfucker. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, that'd be appropriate. Yeah. I'm glad it didn't happen, but I, I, could, I could see that argument. <laughs> a lot of the conversation was awkward. Collins took a long time to get to his apology, and when he did, it was kind of indirect. It seems like Quasi barely even noticed. Even though I wasn't the one that said I saw you throw it, it was it was my influence in that situation that brought my partner to a place where he felt comfortable saying those lies if if they were lies, right? Mm-hmm. So therefore, I do owe you an apology. I believe man to man, I owe you an apology because I operated in the system that's broken. And I helped make so what it you even s- more broken. So what you're saying is you could have just been more blunt like that. What got to Quasi yeah, more than the apology was something that they saw eye to eye on and kind of bonded over. For most of the hour, they talked about how bad the policing is in Benton Harbor. Benton Harbor is 85% black with a police department that's mostly white that has a history of misconduct. There have been decades of protests against the police and a few riots. Collins has named names in court depositions, talked about how many officers were complicit in bad policing. He spends a lot of his book detailing illegal behavior by cops that he says he witnessed and participated in. He talks to police trainees about corruption and racism and how easy it is to slip into those things. So he and Quasi got into all of that. They know the same stories, same cops and judges and prosecutors, people they both believe to be crooked, who never got caught. It was lots of insider talk. Right. You see Officer on film. I'm t- telling them, I want to subpoena Officer right. Oh, we can't find him. We don't know where he at. Huh. He still works there, don't he? Right. That's crazy, man. Different officer, same candy wrapper. But the system itself is, man, it's just full of corruption. You know, you see corruption day in and day out. You stop viewing people as human. You start to see them as, you know, the next prize, the next, you know, the next, next notch in my belt in my career, right? Collins really was trying to connect and win Kwesi over. He even offered to help Kwesi with a case he has pending. You want me to take a copy of the report? But, I mean, if you want to, give me the report. Let me look through it. Trust. I'm not a lawyer, but I've seen crooked police work before. Let me look through it and just show you, like, hey, fight this, fight this, fight this. They seem to get along fine. 
They were polite enough. Quasi seemed like, whatever, an ex-cop who says he's on your side? It can't hurt. After it was over, I walked with Quasi to his car. So how are you feeling? I'm feeling alright. You're not mad at him? How can you get mad to the person that we ain't even at the bottom of the situation yet? Meaning, Collins didn't invent dirty policing. But he admitted to it. Collins confirmed everything Quasi already believed, about the courts and prosecutors and judges and about the Benton Harbor police, who usually deny everything. But by us talking, we find out 10 years later that he on the same page that I'm on, fighting against the same people that I'm fighting against. He looking at the police point of view in the system. I'm looking at the street point of view at the system. So both of us looking at it at both ways, his way and my way, and I'm looking at it my way and his way. Rob Walker, who used to be known as White Boy Rob, he sees things differently. At this point in my life, if he did apologize, it don't mean shit. Honestly, I just want that one chance to whoop his ass. As I said, he didn't want to talk with Collins. But he told me they did bump into each other accidentally. It's a small town. It happened at that cafe from the news story. So when I see him, I said, um, I said, Collins. And he looked. He, when he looked at me, I said, man, you, you, you be on some bullshit. He went to talk about how that ain't him no more. And I, and I told him, I said, man, I want to hear that shit. That don't help me. That don't, it don't help me that you want to, all of a sudden you want to change. Oh, let me ask you, I'm going to be totally honest with you. Did he understand that I changed? He changed a lot. Back when Collins arrested him, he'd been away from drugs for years. Everyone knew that, he says. He even put on his license plate, game over. And it was on his car that day that Collins pulled him over. Rob's gotten plaques from the city for his community work. He started an annual picnic with free rides and food, paid for it all out of pocket. But he still has a felony on his record from that run-in with Collins. So why should I understand that he changed? I shouldn't. I should, give you, I should treat you the same way you treat me. You never understood that I changed, that that wasn't my life more. Now that you claiming that you changed, I feel the same way. You're still a dirty motherfucker to me. I don't care what, what you say. If Collins had a chance to do it all over again, he'd do it all over again. Dirty cop. He was a dirty cop. He is. And to me, that forgiveness shit is overrated. A takeaway, which, of course, is the opposite of all of those news stories. Is there a lesson for America from this? No. The story of someone who doesn't forgive, who thinks being angry is a totally reasonable way to feel. Yeah, maybe it's not heartwarming. But what's wrong with bearing a grudge forever? It could be something to hold on to that keeps you sane. Lily Sullivan is one of the producers of our show. To make you want me, I can fabricate the truth. I'll give you easy, it'll keep me destitute. You hang me up on the line, hang me out to dry, and you got nothing to lose. (laughs) 
Our program is produced today by Robin Semyon. The people who put together our show today include Eldon Baker, Ben Calhoun, Zoe Chase, Sean Cole, Whitney Dangerfield, Neil Drumming, Jared Floyd, Damian Grafe, David Kestenbaum, Miki Meek, Alvin Mellet, Nadia Raymond, Alyssa Ship, Julie Snyder, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney. Our senior producer is Brian Reed. Our managing editor is Susan Burton. Special thanks today to Carolina Iwanow, Louise Seamster, Pastoravia, Laura Rockman, Barbara Body, Naomi Darenbloom, Joanna Broder, Reverend Edward Pinckney, Gregory Warner, Ashley Lopez, and Ben Philpot. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. You can listen to our archive of over 600 episodes for absolutely free. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, he's complaining today about how he'd gotten two tickets, two, both for glittering. Different officer, same candy wrapper. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. You want me to change?